Welcome to the GateWorld Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 129 of the GateWorld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. I'm Diana. And this is the show where this week three nerds talk about Stargate. Diana Bosford, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be amongst fellow nerds. We're really excited about this week's discussion. We're talking about SGU Deconstructed as our main topic. This really, this puts the capstone on top of our two years, really, of talking about SGU. Talking about every episode, we've talked about both seasons, and now it's time to sort of step back. The show's been off the air for a few months. Let's look at what we think worked and what we think maybe didn't work, what we wish maybe would have been done differently. Um, we did this for Atlantis, and, and I thought it was fun and interesting. So mm-hmm. Diana is the voice of reason, I think, when it comes to, to podcasting. <laughs> and experience. Oh, so. I don't know <laughs> if I like that accusation, voice of reason. No, 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 She's no. She's the only one out of the three of us who has actually done television. So, you know. Yes, I, mean, yes. uh, I think Gateworld provides as much a part of the experience of enjoying the episodes as watching them, so... That, that that you guys put a lot of value, a lot of value on the show, and I gotta say, getting to listen to podcasts again from you two, thank you. <laughs> I say thank you. It is a treat to have Darren and David in the car with me during my long drive into town and home. Thank you, thank you. Good to be back. Before we get into the deconstructed discussion, just a quick update. Uh, I want to do every time we we do a podcast now. Uh, on the Stargate rewatch, which is a huge thing that's going on at GateWorld uh, through 2012. And we're into September now, so we are officially up, up, and away watching SG-1 Season 2. So all month long there's going to be all sorts of uh, fun features and cool stuff and discussion going on at GateWorld, focusing on 22 episodes of SG-1 Season 2. The main discussion. main discussion for episode 129 is SGU Deconstructed, where we take hopefully a um, nice perspective look at uh, Stargate Universe Seasons 1 and 2. Let's talk about uh, what worked well, what didn't work well. You know, and I, I'm interested to know, when, when you think of the show, both of you, uh, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the show after, after six months of being off the air now, more than that? Hmm. What a shame! Really? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. It's, it's just—I feel robbed. I feel you know it was—it wasn't just getting good. It had definitely gotten good. It become must-watch TV. I had told you, David, I couldn't watch this thing on Monday nights or Tuesday nights because of my own schedule. Well, mm-hmm. quite frankly, the last six episodes, I had insomnia because I had to watch it. It yeah. became must-watch for me. That's good. That's good TV. Yeah. So it's a shame because it was canceled. So that's what comes to mind for me, Darren. The first thing that I think about is Colonel Young, uh, looking really tired and kind of sweaty, like he doesn't want to be there. Uh, 
sitting in a dark room. And that that says two things to me about SGU. One, it says this was a very different show from SG One and and Atlantis because it was it it was for crying out loud. We've been saying it for two years. It was darker. It was grittier. It was uh, I hate that uh, word. <laughs> more of a character drama. Um, we we got to sit and stew with these characters for so long. Of uh, the we as viewers were in the place of of the characters for so long. Um, we didn't have that sort of bird's eye view where we where we knew stuff that they didn't know necessarily. We were in there, in the corridors with the characters, sort of suffering along. Not that it was suffering to watch the show, but um, you know we didn't know what the heck destiny was. We didn't know if these guys were ever going to be able to get home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to say that when I think back on the show, I think of the ship itself. Um, I was you know, dreaming of the design of destiny before, uh, before she was, uh, announced at, uh, at comic con in such a beautiful way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking a lot about the the ancient battleships and that design, how horrendous I felt that design was, and how I was hoping that the ship would be a, a truly beautiful design. And it was. They made an absolutely amazing vessel. And you know, Mark Savell and his team did a great job in the two years that they had bringing her to life. And it's one of the big disappointments for me is not seeing that ship anymore yeah. soaring yeah, through the cosmos. It really was a piece of art. Yeah, it was beautiful. It there was a logic to it. Um, the effects team is very deserving of the semi nomination that they've received. Uh, not mm. just for the ship, obviously. I know most people are focusing on the aliens, but for me, the work that was done on that ship, the way it would move through camera, the way it would move through a solar system, or uh, when it was in hyper speed. Stunt and FTL speed. It was gorgeous. It was, it was sailing. Gorgeous. It was a sailing ship. Yes, exactly. You know, it just didn't have sails. <laughs> yep. But it had that gliding. Yes. But it also had weight to it. So it felt as it was the first time, to be very honest, because you know I used to do visual effects for a living. Mm. It was the first time that I have seen CGI ships, whether it's television or film, where I really didn't think oh this is cgi there was a sense of weight to it the shadow passes that were done the Mm. the sense of uh that it wasn't perfect the battle scars on it um really they it was so beautifully done beautiful not just beautifully designed but the movement Mm -hmm. a lot of work went into the movement to that thing as far as programming how it would go and as far as the lens the way the lenses would operate the kind of view we would have of it it's there to be applauded for their development on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, as we get into the details of the show, one of the things that I feel like needs to be said is, first of all, let's recognize that um, because the show was was the sort of animal it was as an ongoing arc-based drama, uh, we only got to see part of it. So, I mean, we, we did Atlantis Deconstructed, and yes, Atlantis was sort of cut down in its prime in a lot of respects, but it also had a sense of completion. It didn't have... It have was a rushed to a conclusion, but yeah, yeah. That was, that was necessarily going to be finished. You know, I'm not convinced that if Atlantis had another couple of years that they would have, for example, wiped out the Wraith as a species. 
Um, uh, SGU was ended. Uh, it was canceled before it was meant to be. So we're sort of we're we're critiquing it from from you know we're Monday morning quarterbacking mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. of all, but we're also sort of only looking at at a piece of what the writers wanted to do with the show and with the story. So because we don't have all of the payoff, um, yeah, I think that 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 some of our critiques are are at the same time, you know, they, they got 40 episodes to produce and they produced 40 episodes and they got the ratings that they got and they, they sort of, the show has to stand on what it was able to do. Based off the current industry standards, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I think the biggest thing, if you're familiar with three-act structure and storytelling, whether it's a film or a play or a book or whatnot, beginning, middle, and end, I feel like we had just finished the first act. Mm-hmm. And we were just moving, just that that first big turning point, which was the Descendants, had happened. Of the second, yes. And we were just moving into the second act when this thing got shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so and imagine that's hard. some of these other big arc-based uh, genre shows. Imagine if Lost had ended at the end of season two. Yeah, oh, I would have killed them. <laughs> I would have the killed them. Everything you know about Ben Linus and the others and all that that came out in season three. If we didn't see that, didn't know any of the rest of that mythology, um, Babylon Five, for crying out loud, got awesome in season three, but before that, it was sort of, in my opinion, kind of limping along mm. in some respects. Well, even look, SG One guys. I mean, there's a lot of cheese in that first season. There's a lot of cheese, and but you know, you get to the tail end of that first season, and you go. Okay, I'm sitting up. I'm paying attention now. And then the second season <laughs> mm-hmm. is like wow, and the third season is more wow, and it just gets more and more wow mm-hmm. through the seventh season. Really, I mean, the mm-hmm. eighth season has some great episodes, but it's not as consistent, in my opinion. Um, you know, these guys. You know, it's just it's just the way storytelling is. Now, I mean, I have seen series where it did gel faster uh, in the in this genre, Firefly. Sure. You know, but there's always the question that people ask: Is could Firefly have sustained that level? Whereas the slow it's, burn—it's a fair question. Yeah, the slow burn to a build. I mean, slow build to a burn. You know, it's it's generally expected, and SG One certainly demonstrates that with what happened with that series over the first seven eight years. Um, you know, as far as Atlantis is concerned, I mean, quite frankly. The franchise had so many wonderful layers to it. It's it's in story you could go on for centuries <laughs> with Atlantis and not just about the the Wraith. I mean they, they hadn't even really explored the entire uh, the entire all of Atlantis yet. There's so mm. much to do there and so many other races and other things they could do. And we and, were just really beginning to get into another layer of the Pegasus galaxy with discovering this evil Asgard or the Vanir or oh, whatever you'd yes. like to call them. So knowing what we know about what these guys, what the showrunners, Brad Wright and his team can do in regards to writing and developing a multi-layered, multi-threaded tapestry, again, I go back to what I said before. It really is a shame because we were Mm -hmm. just really getting going. Mm -hmm. But let's not dwell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, but... To be honest, though, I mean, conversely, Monday morning quarterbacking, they should have gotten there a little faster. Hi, this is Stephen from Philadelphia. I uh, decided to do a little test. You know, I was a big fan of Stargate Atlantis and a big fan of Stargate Universe. 
and I showed someone who's in the sci-fi, you know, a little older than me. I'm in my 30s. Showed him um, he's in the sci-fi, but didn't quite follow the whole Stargate craze. So I showed him the first episode of Stargate Atlantis, and then I showed him the first episode of Stargate Universe. And, uh, you know, I asked him which one was better. And he uh, hands down picked Stargate Atlantis that had more action. And um, I think that was the biggest problem with the uh, universe is that it just didn't have enough action. But ultimately, I think it had the better story. It just took too long to get there. Season 1.0, the first 10 episodes of, of uh, season one. In hindsight, this was a slow start. It was great for character stuff. I think this allowed us to, to explore the characters a little bit more, explore destiny a little bit more. But there's not a whole lot that happens in the first uh, uh, 10 episodes other than, you know, Adam and Eve basic stuff where, okay, we how are we going to survive this week? How are we going to survive this week? With Largely with the exception of time, I think, which is, in my opinion, just a masterpiece. And the, the third act of, 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 the, uh, of the pilot episode, which really got me all excited. Yeah, and remember that that pilot is almost a third of that entire first run of episodes that was broadcast mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in the yeah. fall of 2009. Yeah. But, I mean, in my opinion, I felt that it did not need to be a three-hour pilot. I felt it was overindulgent. And mm. um, I, I think the biggest problem that I had with it is that character exploration is critical, unequivocally. Mm-hmm. And I know that's what they were going for. But they didn't let me like the characters mm-hmm. yeah. and I'm sorry but yes. you want me to tune in and watch you want it to be must see TV mm-hmm. I gotta care Yeah, and I it, had a hard time caring it felt like it was about 25 minutes too long you know it, it felt like it was between a two and a, th- and a three part episode and they just fit it into a three mm-hmm. I don't know that, that any of those characters were likable in the first half of the season except for Eli well, um mm-hmm. And I wanted to. I mean, I really wanted to. Yeah, Matt had a hero moment in in Air Part Three, mm-hmm. uh, finding the lime and and getting back to the Stargate. Uh, you know, Ron had a had a hero moment there, uh, helping mm-hmm. Matt. Um, TJ didn't have a whole lot to do in the first half of the season for for me to really decide if I liked her or not. But yeah, what they did was Sci-Fi gave them a two season commitment pending sufficient ratings for the first season. And so they knew they had 40 episodes to work with, and they decided to, to start it off slow uh, in, in such sharp contrast to Atlantis, which was really plot-driven and really mm-hmm. action-driven. They wanted to, to sort of do the opposite and do a character-driven show and have time to sort of sit and stew with these characters for a while. Um, mm. And I think they, they just they did it for too long. And... But I think you also have to define that there's a difference between... I mean, in Atlantis, yes, it's plot-driven, but we're charmed by the characters. We're immediately mm. charmed by them and intrigued by them and interested by them. They're likable. I mean, they are predominantly likable, absolutely, and yet you start to see little bits. Little, little layers of the onion are being peeled back in the first mm-hmm. season of Atlantis, you know, um, and certainly in SG-1. But, yeah, okay, you can call this character-driven, SGU, but for me... That's not my definition of character-driven. Character, to me, they were stepping over the line from drama into melodrama. Hmm. You know. Yeah, I think I see what you mean because uh, you know some of the best shows that I watch 
shows like Firefly, shows like Lost. Look at the first episodes of Lost. Mm. They're able to do character drama in a sense that that is is wrapped up in the story. You know, you get to know the characters as they're going about their adventures, not as they're sitting in a room right. sort of talking about their problem. Right. Well, but, that's a soap opera. Soap opera is reacting. Drama is acting, taking action, doing something about it, and it's the choices that are made that show you about the character, exactly. And speaking in the first half, of, in the first part of season one, um, there were a couple of nuggets in there that were introduced that were kind of tantalizing that weren't ever picked up on again. I'm thinking of Water and, and TJ taking charge. You know, yeah. She was an effective leader in that episode. We never got the chance to see her like that again. And that was, she was great, too, by the way. I was I had a lot of hope once I saw that as far as having strong women leaders uh, in the show. But how about uh, Colonel Young having what appeared to be some sort of seizure or epileptic fit? That was a thread that was a thread that was definitely dropped. Hard. <laughs> yeah, I expected more to be to be made of that. Um, and the explanation that I think came out on on Joe Malazzi's blog after the fact was that it, it it didn't they weren't intending to indicate that he had had some sort of seizure in the past and has some sort of existing medical condition but rather that was just the reality of the real world if he had had a head injury like bleeding into his flashback hmm okay. and that, that just wasn't clear to me watching the episode but mhm all right and the similar the similar thing with you know Scott's and the the sex in the closet scene you know and we we were left we were Very left different with, for Stargate. Yeah, we were yeah. left with the impression that, that the guy might, you know, be a be a sex addict, which would have been like really serious television if it boldly went in that direction. Yeah. Or at least and, a player. And I remember asking one of the producers that and and Oh, no, he's not a sex addict. What are you talking? I'm like, well, you know, that would have been a very interesting direction to go in. And that but that is also the impression that all viewers were left with. Whether whatever they intended or not, that is what that was the impression that we got from mm-hmm. that scene. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel that 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 the inclusion of that scene was an unfortunate choice mm-hmm. for the show. To be honest with you, I think it hurt the character a great deal. I really do. I also think that there is a large portion of people that feel that the quick romance between Scott and Chloe, without any build. Mm-hmm. That it, there was that that was a cheat. That mm-hmm. you know they didn't earn that relationship. We didn't get to see them earn it. It happened too fast. They just jumped into bed and bam, done. Thank you, ma'am. You know, <laughs> <laughs> as early as it happened, it it sort of contributed to our perception that maybe Scott was a player. And, yes. Um, and and when that didn't pan out, when when what actually happened was they had like a, a serious long term adult he loving stuck relationship. With her. Yeah. Um, you're sort of confused then going back and looking at, at the early episodes as as to the way they got together and how quickly they got together. Well, we had to reassess who we thought he was, you know? Right. Because right. the, the man in the pilot was not necessarily the man that, that came, you know, as early as Air Part 3 and the rest of the, and the, rest of, of the series. Right. I mean, I got the sense all along that if he was a sex, sex addict, it wasn't something that he was particularly proud of. That it was yeah. a black mark. It was a bad habit, just like you have people who gamble and people who drink or smoke. This was his bad habit. And it would have been an interesting way to go with this. Um, I just, 
you know, for those, for the shippers listening, you know, watching characters in the first two series of the franchise have to not get together and have to struggle, it's not a case necessarily that they wish that on Scott and Chloe, but they wanted to see those two characters have to earn that relationship, just like in real life you have to earn it. It's filled with misunderstandings. It's filled with confrontations. I mean, even during the the divide when there is basically the mutiny happening and Chloe's on one side and Scott's on another, there should have been a little yelling there. They should have been yelling at, how could you do this? Yeah, yeah and even, even after the fact, there's not a lot of consequences for... for yeah, I don't trust Chloe's you anymore. You, exactly. Exactly. And we needed that. And we didn't get any of that. It was a little too fairy tale. It did make the relationship seem a bit artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I mentioned as, as we got into season two on the podcast, I didn't really buy Matt and Chloe's relationship until Cloverdale. You know, that scene at the end of Cloverdale where she's, you know, sacrificing herself or putting herself at risk in order to save him and at the same time exposing him to this sort of alien contagion in her yeah. blood uh, and staying with him on, on the ramp until he could heal. Um, mm-hmm. That's the point. I mean, that's 25 episodes in that I finally started to buy them as a couple. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was an interesting choice in the middle of season one. They, um, where they chose to leave the, the cliffhanger, which was on Rush on an alien planet, you know, um, and then you come back to space and divided, which is which is a great opening two episodes. But it felt like kind of, you know, Air Part Three being a three episode pilot had shifted all the episodes down one, and they went ahead and and spliced the season at the end of um, ba- yeah. which is basically a trial episode, you know, yeah, and then leaving justice. it for a break. Well, you know what happened here is not just that we had a three uh, three hour uh, series premiere. But uh, the episodes that immediately followed, Darkness, Darkness and, Light. and Light, those were originally written to be one episode. Uh, yep. It was going to be called Fire. And so they were going to end that first half of the season with Space, which is a fantastic episode as this huge alien threat. Um, finally, something outside the ship is, is uh, causing you know, conflict and, and generating stories. Um, and I think that this is one of the one of the biggest missteps, if I can just be brutally honest at this point, one of the biggest missteps of the first season was bumping space to the back half of the season. Well, I think it, that this, the whole scheduling hiatus thing was a big problem in its own. I mean, I almost cl- cliffhangers have their place, but when you have to wait, how many months did we have to wait? Yeah, like four months. Yeah, you know, the, the, the viewer's patience has changed in the last few years. That's a mm. long time to wait. Mm-hmm. That's a long, I mean, one month is one thing, but four months, I mean, don't get me wrong, you have cliffhangers happening. I mean, look at the castle cliffhanger for last season. I mean, they have their place, but they have to, using the castle finale again, um, there, the, the, the cliffhanger has to be on multiple layers now. You can't have it just be all based off one thing that you're waiting for an answer for. It's just not enough to hold you four months. Mm-hmm. You know? And it it has been – the cliffhanger is now – it doesn't feel like you know it's used the same way it was when you had Mr. War Fire with Best of Both Worlds Part 1. You know, mm. where it was just a, a tremendous like – 
hold of suspense to hold you in in its grasp for three months until you come back and you have to find out what happened. It feels like writer's job security now too as well. You know, well, you know, I really want to I really want to have a season six, so I'm going to wrap this uh, this last episode with a cliffhanger so that if we don't get a season six, fans will demand a miniseries. Yeah. Um, and it just. You know, I, I'm I'm tired of kind of being strung along like that. I, I have I have cliffhanger fatigue. I really well, do. Well, this is one of the things I admired about the Eureka writers so much. Another show that now has been canceled. Um, they would they knew where their season breaks were going to happen, and they would close the arc on a season. They would close it so that everything was answered. You still had the larger questions of the series, but yeah. they would finish a storyline. Now, Legend of the Secret did the exact same thing, and it was glorious. Right. Maybe that, I don't know, you know, as, as a writer, maybe that is a element, yes, like you said, job security or uh, lack of faith in the overall series. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't know. Scheduling was certainly a problem. I mean, it was certainly a significant issue that a show like this got got such a big chop in the middle. I mean, the break in between season one and season two was shorter than the break in the middle of the season. Yeah. The mid-season hiatus. Yeah. Uh, the pacing of, the, of yeah. the episode airing was just off, and you felt it. You felt it deep down when you were watching this. It's like, okay, you know? Yeah, then factor in the fact that they start shooting in February, March. And uh, when SGU was originally picked up, uh, Sci-Fi announced that it was going to be a summer show. Uh, which we know the the ratings are just better in the summer months. Mm-hmm. And after a while, before the premiere, um, Sci-Fi decided that they were going to move it to the fall instead. And so you've got... Serious what, contenders that it's up against. And, yeah, but... And then it also got to moved to different days, too, guys. <laughs> I mean, it was on one day, and then it was on another day. It was on Friday, and then it was on mm-hmm. Tuesday, and then it was on Monday against Castle. Yeah, yeah. You but know, my point is the the production schedule. There's a seven month gap between the start of filming and the premiere of the season, so that approximately four episodes had even been broadcast by the time they were done filming the entire season. Mm. There's a huge lag that there just there never was with SG One and most of Atlantis when those were airing in the summer. Right. I mean, a large part of that was to keep their their costs down by giving the shots over to the effects house and giving them a longer window to get the shots done in. It keeps the cost down. And we, oh, it the does. Other, absolutely. You ever hear of Coppola's triangle of production? It, there's good, there's fast, and there's cheap. And you can have any two of the three. If you want it good <laughs> and you want it cheap, you can't have it fast. Just, <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah. So... Um, by giving the shots to an effects house and saying you got six months to get them done in, you're, they can be scheduling it in between their commercials, which bring them in a lot of money, you know, the shorter pieces that bring them money. And they can work on a little here, work on a little there. And it's just more cost effective. The problem, of course, being that the writers were not getting feedback fast enough from us, from mm-hmm. viewers, mm-hmm. to do mid-course corrections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that what we also saw, I mean, I I sort of look at the show really in terms of these 10-episode blocks each half season, and I think that the show got 
markedly better, really noticeably better from one half season. Every to the block, next. yeah. It seemed Every like it block. learned its own lessons before but, it moved on, even though we hadn't necessarily had a chance to reply about it. Exactly. So think about the fact that these episodes had been written and filmed before we saw the first half of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the writers are, are in the room, they're watching their episodes and they're learning about their show, obviously, as they go. And so a lot of things that fans sort of object to and criticize that end up getting fixed down the road are because, you know, the writers are sort of figuring out their own show, too. They're not necessarily responding to viewers who are coming and the network, eight believe it or not. later and watching. The only way that it got as good as it did from point to point is because the writers and, to some respect, the network both sat yes. back and said, okay, let's look at these last ten. What can we do better in the next ten? And they did it. Yep. For the most part. Yep. Absolutely. Well, before we move on to the back half of season one, I think it's worth talking about life. Episode nine is a little bit on the controversial <laughs> side. Oh, here we go. No, I mean, I don't just mean because of, of uh, we get we get Camille's backstory and it's the first openly gay character on Stargate. No, that uh, wasn't what I was suggesting at all. It was just a really intense episode. Yeah, for, for even, even aside from all from from that issue, um, it's it's a, a controversial issue in part looking back on season one because there's a ratings blip at this point. And if yep. you look at the data, I'm not going to make the case here, but the case could be made and has been made that life turned off a lot of viewers and they just didn't come back. It fell like a stone if uh-huh. you look at that graph. And the show never recovers from it at all. No. No, it definitely doesn't. Listen, I wasn't crazy about the show. and I, you know, I could care less about the controversial stuff, okay? My only complaint was, why is it that the one, that the one gay couple is the only stable couple? That, mm. to me, is still very 20th century. That is behind the times, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I mean, they were a lovely couple, but, you know, other couples can have stable relationships, too. I mean, Darren, you're married. I'm married. You know, I mean, it's possible. Um, That's not it, though. It's but the, no, life, it's because it was a soap opera. It, yeah, and it, it wasn't, wasn't it an episode of Stargate. No, it was it, a soap opera. It was yes. as the gate turns. Yeah, there there are some great episodes of Stargate that have um, home life elements as a C plot, so one of the great one is 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 chain reaction with mm-hmm. with Hammond and his daughter and his granddaughters. You know that that is an element there that drives the the larger issues. But with that episode, it was just it was very very domestic, and you can't yeah, it's gonna all think, of us. It, you can't have a Stargate episode with just domestic. You can't do it. There was some great character beats in that episode. There was a lot of there were there were a lot of a uh, couple of profound revelations about. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with Scott and his. He has a son in that episode, but it doesn't work by itself. And the ratings, if nothing else, demonstrate that crystal clear. Yep. Well, life life is very similar in that respect to Earth. Uh, it came two weeks before it, episode seven. Um, both of these episodes, uh, the the crew members are sort of taking turns using the communication stones to go back to Earth and visit their loved ones. In, in Earth, there was also another story going on, uh, on Destiny with Telford and his scientists doing this really dangerous move to try and dial the, the Stargate. Um, that sort of anchors the whole thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's the sort of element that's not present in life. No. It's quite Nor is Janelle Monet present in life either. So. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I, I there there really was quite the ratings plummet, and uh, I had never thought before about how that might have permanently affected the series. But I think you have a good point. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately, we know that that Stargate was looking to attract new viewers. Um, they had bled some viewers over the years, um, not blaming any show or any any episodes. You know, Already the actor older, departures. Yeah, the older a show gets, you know, people tune out, and with Stargate especially, people uh, more and more started time shifting and watching DVRs and and downloading stuff, and that hit the ratings. So when SGU launches, the producers are in a point where they need to appeal or they want to appeal to a broader audience, get some new people who sort of wrote off Stargate ten, ten years ago to watch the show. So you have a finite window of time where people are willing to check out this new thing. Some people gave it the pilot. Some people gave it the, the third part of the pilot that second week. Some people gave it that whole first segment before the break. Ten episodes. And I, I really think that, that based on those ten episodes and the pace and the lack of external threats that, that come up immediately in episode 11... Um, I think a lot of those sort of newbies checked out the show and didn't come back after the the mid-season hiatus. Mm -hmm. It was not an edgy show. I mean, um, quite frankly, I mean, I deal with the demographic they were going after. I deal with that demographic as a professor and teaching them how to write this kind of stuff. What they want is edgy. This is why Battlestar was succeeding, and SGU was just going at too slow a pace. It was too plotting. In those early episodes, I applaud them trying to do something different, but it needed to be by edgier. It needed to be have more energy in it. Mm-hmm. The energy was missing from those episodes. But it began to pick it up in the last half, though. Yes. Yeah. So, what about the second half of the season? I think that that a lot of a lot of my issues that I had with the first half. With the slow pace, the fact that nothing really is going on other than the characters are are bemoaning their their fate and trying to trying to survive, uh, we we start to get external threats. We meet the blue aliens in space. Yes. Um, we we get past the civil war. You know, sort of a civil war episode has to come along, and so we get divided. And I was just sort of happy to see it come and go and be done with that part <laughs> of the story. Yeah, no, Darren, I agree with you. That was my attitude about it too. I'd like to have seen that happen, like episode. Five though. Yeah, that yeah. episode had to be done at some point. It should have it been just done much to. earlier, though. Much earlier. But I mean, we have we have more external threats. We have the blue aliens. We have uh, our our characters are lost on on planets. They're gating from planet to planet, trying to catch up with destiny. In the episode mm-hmm. Lost, it's a fantastic episode. Um, mm-hmm. You get the little bugs in pain that are causing problems. Oh, yeah. With hallucinations, yes. and then eventually by the end of the season, you get the Lucian Alliance threat. Uh, it's it's very different from the first half of the season. I mean, for me as a viewer, I felt like I was finally being rewarded for sticking it out. Yes. You know, I was like, okay, I can definitely hang my hat on this show now. I feel good. It's working. It's building. You're beginning to see the payoff. Yes, exactly. With with I be I think with space especially. I mean, you saw that pod detach from Destiny and fly off, and and we didn't hear anything about that for. You know, seven episodes, which yes. which was considerable at that point, you know, but or or eight, but uh, you know that th- those those creatures were such a cool a cool addition to that episode, and Chloe being captured, and you know, it just it just really really took off, I think, 
Well, it got more speculative. I mean, just like you were saying with the pod, with the shuttle pod thing taking off from the Destiny, you know, for the next few weeks, you're thinking, oh, what's that? You know, what's going on there? I wonder. And you have to engage the viewer at that level where they're thinking about the show, not just while they're watching it, but at other times. That's how mm-hmm. you build anticipation, and that's how you build must-see TV. Mm. Yeah, we're not alone in this far, far away galaxy. That was very intriguing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And I definitely thought it was fun. But honestly, what happened in the second season, that should have been... This should be the end of the first season. What they took yeah, two what... seasons to do should have happened in one season. So tell me, where do you think that uh, in an ideal world, if you had the show to rewrite, where do you think season one should have ended? Do you think it should have gone all the way up through the point of in the story of, of Gauntlet? No, epilogue. Epilogue. Really. epilogue. That far? Yeah, epilogue. And I think that... Um, but you would have tweaked the ending to have had some bigger risks. I mean, that was one of my issues, too, with the series. It didn't take big enough risks. You know, Riley is the is you know we kept being told that you know no one's safe, no one's safe. Well, quite frankly, all the main characters were safe. You know, if you really want to shock us, do what they did in Game of Thrones. Yeah, knock off. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I'm not gonna say yeah. who gets knocked not, off. But hello, well, several people get knocked off, and I got news for you. Next year, oh my God, people get knocked off. I mean, <laughs> if you're going by the book, yeah. Holy yeah, crap! But the, the but that's the whole point is to to use the cliche of going by the book. The writers have got to stop going by the book, and they do need to kill off main characters. We need to really feel like nobody's safe. Mm. You know, take huge risks. And they didn't take any... I mean, Riley, to me, the Riley thing and the Descendants were the two riskiest things that they did, and the payoff was huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Huge in both cases. They created story, oh. you know? And character. To me, the fact that Colonel Young had to do what he did with Riley, that he had to do an action, tells me so much more about the character than having him sit there yeah. and whining in his room. Yeah. I mean, that episode created trial and error, and then Twin Destinies, which I was so excited about from the very beginning, I had no idea, none of us did, how much story that was designed to create. Mm-hmm. And it just was so exceptional. Yeah. I forgot how much I liked Trial and Error. I really liked that episode. That was very good. It's 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 Groundhog Day. It's its own version of window yeah. opportu- of opportunity. Yeah, but it's but it's the implications of what's going on that made mm, it exactly. unique and made exactly. it speculative and made you think after the episode was over. And therefore, because you're thinking after the episode is over, next week is must see TV. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we were learning more about destiny at that point. Yes. Oh, boy. The ship is in our heads. Yes. Yes. And boy, did that lead to all kinds of possibilities. I mean, all kinds of possibilities. I mean, mean, when that episode aired, I pitched this to David. I had this very crazy idea of what if the entire series had been in their heads. And from the moment in air that they stepped through that gate, they were unconscious and dying. There was no air. And all along, all of this has been Destiny. Destiny's trying to keep them alive. And talking to them. So, yes, the potential was enormous for that. Mm-hmm. 
And I do regret, I had listened, Darren, to you guys talk about uh, season two. You had talked about how once everybody started to step up, that Destiny didn't get involved anymore. I regret that. Because I thought that was interesting how it, I mean, that's disturbing that a machine can, like, basically affect my perceptions. Yeah. Well, it was course correcting them. You know, that's how I looked at that. And then by the the second half of season two, you could see that people were talking about the mission. You could see that they were getting invested in what was going on, especially when their when their descendants got involved. They personally became involved as well because this was a civilization that they had helped create. So more was happening for them out in the cosmos and less was happening for them back at Earth. Yeah, I agree. The longer that they were out there, the more detached they were becoming. And, I mean, in my opinion, the Descendants was the most magnificent element added to this series. It's, it was a great idea. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was you brilliant. Know, I mean, if, if there are no supplies out there, if there is nothing, n- nothing to hope for, nothing to work for except for this mission, n- nothing to use, let's create a story which creates all of this stuff for us. And that's exactly what happened, you know? Yeah. And it was also kind of this feeling of full circle because the previous series had dealt with the ascendants and the ants and the ancients which were to a certain extent our ancestors and it dealt with offshoots of civilizations that had been taken through the gate thousands of years ago so here we are at the whole other end of the spectrum with our descendants mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, that was terrific and Diana, you had suggested something really interesting where, you know, they, they had almost stumbled upon a, a franchise origin idea where if, if Destiny had just gone back, had just gone back in time uh, hundreds of millions of years instead, it could have been the foundation of, of everything that, yep. that the franchise has ever been built on. Yeah, the, oh. the ancients, the ascendant, the ancestors, that the, de- the de- descendants are actually the ancestors. Destiny's mission was to seed human life at the start. Yes. So. But they just went 2,000 years in the past, which is still, I mean, what they did was still a great idea. But, you know, I, it's just... Yeah, or, or even if the Novans had, instead of the Novans, had been... The Alterans. Al- the Alterans. Mm-hmm. That's what we're suggesting. In the Ori yeah. Galaxy. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, but yes, there was a lot of great fodder in the second season that was really enriching the tapestry. Whereas these episodes like Life, um, Earth, uh, elements of other episodes that just were too slow and plotting, and they just were not moving the series forward, both character and plot forward. Well, they were mm. supposed to help us to get to know the characters before the characters then went out and and had adventures and, and conflict. Um, and I, I didn't feel like I really got to know, you know, Matt all that well no. by him going back in somebody else's body and, you know, meeting his son, who we may never see again. Um, now, thank goodness they, they do use those elements. You know, he hallucinates his son in pain, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, but I just, I didn't feel like I was actually getting to know these characters and all the time that they were spending no. introducing me to them. And there's one more element we haven't talked about with these characters, and this is one of the things I think that long-term franchise fans were bothered by, and that is you can have your squabbles and you can have your crazy uncle, but... There, 
still needs to be that esprit de corps, that sense of uh, the three musketeers, one for all, all for one, that the previous two franchises gave us. There would be that sense of that the sum is greater than the individual parts, and we didn't have that at all until Gauntlet. Mm. Yeah. You know, and we need that. We need that. I mean, you certainly see that. You saw that in Battlestar. You saw that in Eureka. You saw that in the other two Stargate franchises. Okay? Uh, Warehouse 13, Alphas. Pretty much any other sci-fi show is doing that. Even in Battlestar, when they're cheating on each other and, and things like that, that is BC plot stuff. When they need to come together, they come together. They and they protect each other and they care about each other. And that was not the case with Stargate Universe for the first one and a half seasons and yeah. I think that that bothered franchise fans a lot I think that's one of the hallmark characteristics of the SG-1 team and, and Shepard's unit you know they they did have squabbles they did have issues but I think you're right Diana when it really came down to it all that stuff was you know we could sit that we can deal with that when the threat is over right right and you know that helps us to admire them to a certain extent and I think that also leads into another part of the problem, and that is Colonel Young. I mean, you want to, you, I mean, Daring, you and I were You want to root for him. Yeah, you wanted to root for him. Well, you wanted but, to root for everybody. Right, you but did. But he's now, the why leader. Why would you? <laughs> you have, he, he sets the tone. He's the Picard. He's the Cisco. If he doesn't get it, the song is sour. Yes. Um, and when he really did start to get it, even Destiny goes, okay, we can go now. And <laughs> Literally, uh, yeah. Yeah. when he finally decided to, to to boy up and say, okay, this is, you know, I, I've Emily's divorced me, let's, and I, I need, I've, I've put Riley's death behind me now. What's the bigger picture here? What are we going to do about this? And he enters the Apple Corps and he says, okay, you know, let's, he starts giving orders. And even I was like, okay, now yeah. this, now this is the man that I've been waiting for. He's here, you know? Yeah, that's a huge really... turning point. Yeah, that's it a is. huge turning point in trial and error. And also remember Twin Destinies. The alternate crew is given the choice to go home through the Stargate, maybe, mm. or stay and fulfill this mission. And Rush needs like twelve people or whatever the number was. And he's the first one to volunteer. Mm -hmm. He's like, so how many do you need? Twelve? So ten? Yeah, right. I yeah. love that. And was a lot of people stay behind, and that's that's a major turning point. Even though, even though our characters in our timeline who move forward don't end up having that experience, it we just, still know it who would have done for it. the audience to see that is huge. Yes, yep. and doesn't that show you? Doesn't that inform you about character mm -hmm. more than sitting and talking about it? Mm -hmm. Even though our guys didn't ultimately do it, it still matters because we know what kind of people they are. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, the showing versus telling problem really got out of control on this series for some reason, and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, down to the things that you guys were talking about in the podcast about uh, the Cedar ship. I want, don't move the camera. Stop. I want to see for a while. Let yeah. me see this. And then the yeah. whole big mission. Yeah, we should talk know? about the mission for a while. Okay. We talked last week about the fact that um, the, the the discovery is made off screen, basically by Rush, and so we get we get it in in exposition. Uh, there's that question. Okay, we we talked about that last week, but but sort of the larger question that I have, sort of for the panel here, is is the mission satisfying? 
or maybe is is the mission potentially satisfying if they would have been able to finish their story do you think this cosmic background radiation sort of meaning of life stuff would have been worth all the build up that we that we had up until you know 27 episodes it took us before we got to the greater good well isn't that hard to say considering we had just basically gotten into the second act of a three act play i mean it is hard to say but try <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the the stuff that I had seen, and I'm going to let Diana talk more about this because everyone's pretty much heard my opinion, but the stuff that we had already seen was just preliminary. You know, it's hard to say, considering we didn't see the rest of what the show was going to be. It probably would have been very appropriate, the amount that they had given us, you know, because they had they had figured out what they were going to tell and where. But, you know, in hindsight, it's like, no, that's that, of course it's not enough because we didn't see the whole thing. I have to agree with that. I think that one of the places that could have helped reinforce the what's at stake and why this is so important, if there was this running thread of people taking turns, listening to the background radiation, trying to make sense of it, and if they got into some of the debates that uh, that, that the implications, the potential of the implications of this background and, um, radiation, and more importantly about what caused the Big Bang, because that's really where it all comes from. Is this a message? Therefore, who created the Big Bang? I mean, I was starting to think, wouldn't it be wild if, I mean, this is the destiny, if they're going to create the Big Bang? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that there's, again, one of these time loop type things happen that to fulfill the destiny of the human race, they have to go to a particular place in time to start things back up again. It seems like that might that have been, might have been a very logical place. That might have been where the show was going. I mean, the producers have talked about the fact that the this was, you know, the secret at the end of the show was so big, it was going to cast a shadow over the entire Stargate universe and everything that we'd ever seen before. And there was, you know, there was no talk when when the the cancellation lights were blinking of a fourth series because mm-hmm. the ending of of SGU was supposed to be just so fundamentally earth-shattering that they couldn't top it. Exactly. This show was the ninth Chevron. There, there is no tenth Chevron. You know, to to put it in one in one context, this show was supposed to conquer something really big. You know, and that's what it was doing. That's where they were going with it. I think it was to bring the whole franchise full circle, and I think that the Descendants thing may have been to stick a toe on the water on that. That's mm-hmm. what I think. That's why I think the ship was named Destiny also. But, the, but between, even this, in the second season, when it finally comes out, what's going on? I mean, first off, yes, we should have been part of that discovery. We would have been much more emotionally committed. But then keep it up. Keep up people taking turns listening or thinking mm-hmm. about it. Or, I mean, obviously the Lucian Alliance people had this deep-seated religious uh, background motivating their participation in this they they didn't quite know that's one angle to explore let's Mm. get more of that they they had throwaway lines it was always throwaway lines it wasn't allowing us to be part of the process of Mm -hmm. discovery so we couldn't commit Mm -hmm. you know and so i think that was probably in my mind if you want a really monday morning quarterback and i apologize but that's what (laughs) You know, I apologize to the writers <laughs> that they're listening, but that was your biggest mistake. You kept us at arm's length. 
that was the biggest mistake. You have to let your viewers be emotionally connected. Mm. Yeah, and I, it really still feels to me like there were so many points at which the creative decision was to put the audience in the point of view of not just the characters, but of, of particular characters. So if we want the audience to feel frustrated along with Colonel Young about how cagey Rush is acting, then, you know, we need to sort of learn along with Young that Rush knows the secret and has kept it from him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if that's the logic that went into those sorts of decisions, I understand it. But, but yeah, I agree with you, Diana. It just being limited in your POV as the audience, you end up having sort of a disconnect from the characters and from the, the larger story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it is a larger story. So we needed to be part and parcel of it. And, you know, and I was even surprised at, I felt like Young, Young's immediate acceptance was too immediate also in a sense of, you know, if you were told this, that there is scientific proof going on, that's a big deal. Wouldn't you want to see if, I mean, if you don't, if you don't want us to discover it with Rush, let us Explore, explore, explore it with, with young. With young, let us be introduced to it with young. But don't tell us. Show us, please. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's really my key complaint with this whole thing. Well, there's so much in SGU to be grateful for and to be happy about. By the time the show concluded, um, it really was, I think, firing on all thrusters story-wise, and these characters we'd finally gotten to care for so many of these characters. I mean, somebody like Camille, who was originally written in the pilot to be sort of a, a, a supporting player. Yeah, a guest star. Who was, mm-hmm. was not going to be a series regular. They cast Ming-Na and decided she, this character needs to be a regular. Um, well, you had an exceptional actress. Yeah, yeah and, and I just, by the end of the series, I, I love the character. I find her, her very sympathetic, and that's true all the way down the line. It's true of Greer. It's true of I love Greer. TJ. It's true of the secondary characters, you know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> it's true of them, probably. I mean, they're the, the shining heroes of this show is, is a lot of the secondary players. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. It's the R2 and 3PO of Destiny. I mean, you know, the, they're, they're vital components to the show, and you, you couldn't imagine watching it without them. Definitely firing on all cylinders by the end. So, again, it was a shame. It was definitely a shame. And, you know, and I recognize they were trying to do something different, so you're going to stumble. But, you know, it's a shame that it, it took so much stumbling to finally get to that point. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it is. It's weird that there's no Stargate. Yeah, it's yeah, very it bizarre. It's very bizarre. Hopefully, that won't last forever. Knock yeah. on wood. Well, I certainly applaud the effort of of doing a different show. A lot of people just wanted more of the same, and the same was great. But Stargate was not going to be around for very long if they didn't take a risk. And and obviously they took a risk, and and it didn't seem to work. But. I think they had to do something. You know, David and I, a couple of years ago on this podcast, were sort of wishing for a show just like this. We were needing something. We were kind of, I mean, I, I think I think we were the television equivalent of spiritually dead at that point. <laughs> yeah, and, it turned out, for sure. 
Yeah, and SGU was the show that I wanted to watch. So when it got canceled, I took it very personally. I took it more personally, I, I think, than yeah. the than the other two shows that got canceled, even though I loved them dearly, uh, because this was the show that I had waited to see. Mm-hmm. I, f- I felt like this one had come around just for me. And when it was gone, I chose not to deal with it by, by turning off from it. And in hindsight, you know, I, that, that was the only way that I could that I could escape that that emotional pain because I had become so invested in, in the characters and in the in the quality of 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 the product that we were then at the end of the series getting. With epilogue, it just took me off my feet. And by the time that I had that we had seen that episode, we knew that it was going to be over. Mm. And rather than being like, "Holy cow, that's awesome," we were like, "Holy cow, what a disappointment!" You know. Yeah, it says you know. a lot about a show when when it has that sort of emotional impact on you. Um, I thought it was a real shame to lose Defying Gravity. I love that show, but you know, I wasn't sort of losing any sleep over it. Um, it, with with SGU, I mean, part of it is 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 the it's the entire franchise has now come to an end, if if only temporarily. But with SGU, there's there's so much investment that that we made. That yeah, it did feel like you're sort of staying up at night. Well, you know, unfortunately, it was a victim of the grand changes that are going on with that particular network because of the of them being acquired by Comcast you know um, it was the second in a trio of victims Caprica Stargate Universe and then Eureka so and, far yeah. yeah so far well I mean Comcast is I mean they're trying to get out of their niche and we are it's our, our own fault in a certain sense I mean yes there are we just sat here Monday morning quarterbacked what could have been better, okay? Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, <clears throat> better would have meant maybe another point, you know? Um, it's a digital channel. They had it on opposite huge network shows. It was never going to get watched in real time. Mm-hmm. And that is in part because people that are aficionados of the genre were generally technically advanced. So we are using technology to help our lives, okay? Mm-hmm. So, okay, it's recording. I'm going to watch Castle because I can go to sleep watching Castle. No offense because I like Castle too, but I can mm-hmm. go to sleep watching that. It's recording and, you know, I'll watch it tomorrow evening earlier so that I'll have time to sit back and think about it afterwards. It's unfortunate. I am excited, however. I haven't heard a, barely a peep. I don't know if you guys have. I'd really like to know what Brad Wright's doing, what he's working on. I don't know where he is right now. Yeah. I hope he's getting a lot of sleep. Because <laughs> yeah, the man's deserved it. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he's sunning himself on a beach drinking mojitos somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, this guy gave He'll us... Back. He gave us 17 seasons, basically, right? 17 seasons mm-hmm. of wonder and speculation humor, profound thoughts, a little bit of silliness, some disturbed concepts, some wonderful concepts. He was our storyteller for a very long time. It's weird. It's a legacy just as great as Roddenberry, and Roddenberry had a lot of help. He wasn't there for a lot of it. 
yes. you know, and what we think of, of as Rod Roddenberry's legacy. You know, this man was the man responsible at, at the genuinely at the at the top of, of the reins of all of it. You know, yes. it's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, hats off to Brad Wright and to everybody else that worked with him, Robert Cooper and uh, all the other folks. But really, the captain of the ship was Brad Wright. And I hope that folks will remember that. And he took some big chances, as much for where he was creatively, you know, as I'm a writer too. And, you know, there are times where it's like, all right, I've done this enough. I need to do something else. And he was trying to do something else in the franchise. He took some chances for our sake as well as his. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kudos and hats off to him. That's SGU Deconstructed. And once again, big thanks to our good friend Diana Botsford for joining us for this discussion. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking with you guys or listening to you guys. <laughs> well, we'll be back Always next pleasure. time for you to listen to uh, Open Line Night. If uh, anybody out there has a topic that has been burning a hole in your brain, now is the time to call the Gate World Podcast Hotline and get it out there. We're looking for you guys to give us give us a topic, ask us a question. It can be Stargate related, it can be science fiction related. Boxers or briefs, Darren? No, not doing that. Uh, we're not even going to talk about David's puff and ruffle. Oh, man, is that old. Uh, Diane, did you even know what that is? No, what are <laughs> okay, you talking about? I will explain about? after the show. That'll be episode number 130 of the podcast, Open Line Night. So uh, please do give us a call now on the podcast hotline. Uh, and that number is area code 951-262-1647. You can call anytime, day or night. You can also make a short audio recording on your computer if you don't want to call a U.S.-based telephone number and just email the file to webmaster at gateworld.net. You can also read uh, the show notes for this podcast at uh, gateworld.net. It has all the pertinent links related to uh, uh, points of discussion in this episode. And uh, we really like uh, your feedback, so uh, pay us a visit in the podcast feedback thread in Gateworld forum. I noticed, I've noticed recently that there are a number of callers, of, of the semi-regular callers that we get who have now gone on to Gateworld Forum and set up accounts just to talk about the podcast. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That is cool. Yeah, a lot of guys who are, are calling in are giving their, their forum handle now, which is nice. Make the connection. Well, we'll see everybody back here next time. Diana, I hope we can get you back on the show for another exciting installment. Thank you. I would be very happy to come back. And thanks, everybody, for listening, continuing to listen to us. From Gateworld, this is Darren. This is David. And this is Diana. And we'll see you next time on the Gate World Podcast.